0: And the darkness has not overcome it. Well, good morning, church family. How are we doing today? A a morning. I just like mixed up the amens I heard in there in the morning. All right. I'll blame it on the rain, but I thank the Lord for the rain. That's the answer to some prayer for many people. Hey, listen, I loved having our church picnic with you guys last week. That was so much fun. Such a great time to get together as a church family, uh, just having fun together. Um, For all of you who kept telling your kids to come shoot me with water guns, you need to repent. um, And you need Jesus. I'm kidding. No, it was hilarious and fun. And uh, that's honestly probably the thing that made me enjoy it the most was watching the kids have all that fun. And then seeing some gray hair even running around squirting kids. Uh, it was a, a great fun time. Hey, guess what, church family? We made it to the New Testament. This is exciting. And if, for some of you, if you're new or a visitor, you're like, what? So our church is doing something this year we're calling the Year of the Bible, where we're taking January to December to go Genesis to Revelation, covering the main story of the Bible, showing that the Bible is not just a bunch of random, disconnected, godly stories, but it is actually one story about Jesus, leading up to Jesus, revealing Jesus looking back and explaining what Jesus did and teaching us also to look forward to what he is yet to do, which is to come back for his bride. And so we have been so enjoying. I personally have loved being in the Old Testament. Uh, It it reaffirms to me and, and gives me a deeper, renewed conviction in the importance of the Old Testament, how we need it to rightly understand the New Testament But I'm also pretty excited about getting into the New Testament today. One challenge remains for us as I want to remind us of this, uh, the lenses we bring to Scripture, especially when we get into the New Testament, that there are things that we don't recognize as modern Westerners that ancient Near Easterners would see and know and understand. There are significant um, cultural Gaps. There are significant geographical and even technological, obviously technological gaps, that sometimes can um, the gap of understanding and knowledge that we have can, can be obstacles to rightly perceiving and understanding what's going on. For instance, today, if for whatever reason you want water, like right now, if you wanted water, what would you do? You would go out to the, what I had to learn was called a bubbler here. Uh, when I moved here from Texas, I remember that uh, it was after I lived here maybe a month or two that someone came up to me and was like, hey, where's the bubbler once? And I was like, what? <laughs> uh, okay, maybe they didn't say once. Maybe that's a Sheboyganism that I threw into the sentence. But uh, someone came up to me and was like, where's the bubbler? And genuinely, I looked at them like, excuse me? Like, did I miss here? Did I miss the bubbler? And and all the pictures in my mind, are we talking about like one of those automatic air guns that blows bubbles out for, like, what are you talking about? That's all what happened in my mind in about two seconds. Uh, And this person, obviously reading the blank on my face, they said, you know, a drinking fountain. And I was like, Oh, a water fountain, that's what we called those in Texas. But when I say water fountain to you, you picture a bird splashing around in a fountain in front of a courthouse or something like that. So all these gaps, that's just geographical cultural gaps. That's not even historical thousands of year gaps. And, and just to take the point a little further, uh, yesterday we celebrated one of my daughter's fourth birthdays and we had a party with family and at this party, one of our family members said to another family member, asking them about their family member's dog. Are you with me? It's a lot. <laughs> one family member asked another family member about their family member's dog, saying, what kind of dog is it? And they said, uh, you know, it's a 57. Yeah, some of you. Yeah. Southern white boy from Texas is like, What? Like, what are you talking about, a 57? And they helped me understand, oh, well, that's, that's a mutt. You know, that's a mixed breed dog, and it's called a Heinz 57. And I was like, but I thought that was ketchup. So these gaps can be challenging to overcome over time and and throughout cultural interpretation and understanding. How many of you, by show of hands, raise your hand if you understand what I mean when I say, oh yeah, I put that in my trapper keeper. Some hands up, plenty of hands down. Yeah, that was, if you grew up in school at the same time as me, You would organize your stuff in a Trapper Keeper. I had a starter Trapper Keeper, so I was really cool. What about this? How about this? This one will be fun. How many of you have ever worked on and know what a floppy disk is? Yeah, floppy disk. If you're under maybe 30 years old, you probably have never worked on a floppy disk. Okay, Uh, so these are just some of the examples of how understanding cultural background, understanding history, understanding experience can have implications on your ability to properly understand and interpret Scripture. This is why historical cultural context matters in Bible study. And so this week, with our reading plan, having put the Old Testament behind us in our reading plan, and now opening up into the New Testament if you finished Malachi chapter 4, the last book of the Old Testament, and you open Matthew chapter 1, you find automatically it feels like a very different world than where you left off in Malachi and Nehemiah and Ezra. Because when you left off in Malachi, Nehemiah and Ezra, there was the Persian Empire ruling and reigning supreme over all the, over all the, the area that is accounted for. And then all of a sudden, you're reading about Caesars, and Rome, and about kings, and under kings, and you're hearing about these people that are called Pharisees and Sadducees, and you're like, what happened in this blank page between the Old Testament and the New Testament? And some of the things there are pertinent to properly understanding, because you also see things like tax collectors in there. And you might think, well, I might have strong feelings about the IRS one way or another, But the way these Jews are viewing and responding and talking about tax collectors is a little different. Like they hate them in a way that there must be some things there I don't understand. So all of that to say, as we move from Old Testament into New Testament, I'm going to take a few minutes this morning to focus in and try and paint a picture of that cultural gap of what's called the intertestamental period, which is what happened between Malachi chapter 4 and before Matthew chapter 1, that gap that covers 400 years. From when Malachi closed and Matthew opened, this is a 400-year period that scholars call the intertestamental period. And obviously, as I said, if you open Matthew after the Old Testament, you can be easily confused by this gap. And it's important we recognize 400 years? That's a long time. Like a lot can happen in 400 years, and a lot did obviously happen in 400 years. For example, 400 years is 150 years longer than the good old U.S. of A has existed. This is 150 years longer than America. So imagine and think for a moment of how old and how far away the American Revolutionary War feels. Think about George Washington and think about your slow-motion Mel Gibson running with his flag, his American flag. Patriot? No? Okay. Uh, Think about those things and think about how far away and how long that feels. Yeah, that's 150 years shorter than this period between Malachi and Matthew. And so a lot does happen in that timeline. And what a lot of people wonder is, well, why doesn't the Bible account that time? Why does the Bible talk about it? Well, actually, the Bible does, just not in a historical sense like you would expect. The Bible does talk about this uh, time in a prophetic sense before it happened. You guys remember a few weeks ago, we were in the book of Daniel, right? And in the book of Daniel, both King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel had dreams and visions about the kingdoms that would come after Babylon. And Daniel interprets those dreams. Do you remember in in Daniel chapter 2, there was the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had that was grieving him. He couldn't understand it, couldn't interpret it. So he calls his wise men and they're like, yeah, we don't know what your dream was and we can't tell you what it means either. And Daniel, under the power of God, says, well, King, here's your dream. You had a vision. you saw an image of this massive statue, and this statue's head was gold. Its arms and chest were silver. Its waist and legs or thighs, were bronze. The lower legs and feet were iron, and the toes were a mixture of iron and clay. And Daniel says to King Nebuchadnezzar, "This statue is the stages of kingdoms that are going to come after you? You, O oh great king, are the gold head. Nebuchadnezzar, king, the the golden head represents the kingdom of Babylon. the The silver part of the statue, the arms and chest, represent the kingdom that's going to come after the Babylonian kingdom, and then the bronze. Midsection and thighs represents the kingdom that's going to come after that kingdom. And then finally, the, king, the, the iron represents the kingdom that would come after that. Four kingdoms represented in this vision. And so when we think about the intertestamental period and what happened in those four years, it was the progression of those kingdoms with Babylon being the golden one. Uh, and then the ones that would follow after that um, are, are what are accounted there. And not only in Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, and one of the later chapters, Daniel continues to have visions about these kingdoms that would come where they're different illustrations. It's not a statue, but it's beasts, it's animals. And then in the next dream, there's like a ram and there's goats. Every single one of these dreams and visions is God showing Daniel the kingdoms who are going to follow. And not only that, Not only the kingdoms that would follow, but even down to the way that these leadership transitions would happen. So, in 403 B.C., the book of Malachi is is drafted. Malachi's ministry takes place. That's the end of the Old Testament. And in that time where we were, the Persian kingdom, which is the silver on the statue. Remember, gold was Babylon. The silver the chest and arms, is the Persian kingdom, the Medo-Persian empire, which came in, overthrew Babylon, conquered them, and and became the next kingdom in these dreams. That's 403 BC when Persia is ruling and reigning under the ministry of Malachi. Then you fast forward about 50-ish years, 356 BC, a man by the name, if you're a history buff, King Philip II of Macedon, this guy Macedon, which is becomes Macedonia, it's part of Greek or Greece, the Greek Empire. King Philip II has a son you might have heard of. His name Alexander. Apparently, who's a pretty great guy. Alexander the Great. Come on, thanks Cole. Yeah, great jokes this morning. He was a really great guy. No, they call him Alexander the Great because of how quickly and how powerfully. One, he conquered the Silver Persian Empire and created the Bronze Empire of Greece, spreading Hellenism throughout the region and domain. And anytime you hear Hellenism or Hellenistic, that literally and simply means Greek culture, okay? So when you see Hellenists in history and especially in scripture, these are people who want to keep Greek culture. And so Alexander the Great, he won in, in just over a decade conquers completely this massive, huge Persian empire, the largest empire in history to that time that is so big. And in those days, if there was two empires or kingdoms that wanted to fight, it's just line up your two massive armies and go at it. And usually the army that was bigger would win. Well, Alexander said, that's dumb. If I'm going to beat Persia, I've got to go about it a different way. And he developed all these different strategic battle practices like the phalanx where you'd line up all your cavalry, your your horses, and cover them in armor. Give your soldiers really long spears, like 16-foot spears, and just plow with this arrow of cavalry cavalry into that army. And bit by bit, army by army, battle by battle, country by country, Alexander just destroys them. And he expands the Greek empire. Not only does he conquer Persia, but he then goes, let's go further. And he expands this Hellenistic kingdom all the way west and then all the way to the borders of India. And after over a decade, actually 12 years, his generals and his army were like, hey, Alex, this is getting really old. This whole war thing and conquest, we're kind of tired of fighting. Can we please go back home? And obviously he can't continue conquest without an army, so he says, "Sure." Takes them two years to get back home to Greece, and when they get there, Alexander is on his deathbed. At, I can't remember; it's 32 or 33 years old, young, early 30s. He's on his deathbed, and he has no heir. He has no will written out. Who's this kingdom going to go to? The largest kingdom that the earth has ever seen, this empire. And they're like, "Alex, what do you want us to do?" And he's like, give it to the strongest. That's literally what he says. Give it to the strongest. And then he dies. And they're like, okay. So what happened was his four top generals who were leading his army, the four generals divvy out his empire amongst the four of them. Now, Alexander, not only did he spread the empire, but he was passionate about spreading Hellenistic culture everywhere he went. So it wasn't, let's just take up the stakes and take more land. He comes into the land and says, hey, you're going to start living Hellenistic. You're going to learn Koine Greek. All of you are going to learn Greek everywhere we go. We're going to make sure they learn Greek. You're going to stop dressing like a bunch of weirdos, and you're going to start wearing short togas. You're going to cut your hair, men. You're going to shave your faces. You're going to start wearing high-strapped sandals. He was, he was passionate about spreading what he thought was the best culture into everywhere that they conquered. And so that has spread. What he didn't know, though, was he was actually accomplishing the purposes of God, preparing the landscape to receive Jesus Christ and then have the gospel ignite like a fire and spread throughout all the land because everybody spoke Koine Greek. After that, the Roman Empire would come and lay down 250,000 miles of road and install Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, to where the gospel could just flourish and spread and go throughout like wildfire. We're not there yet, though. So these four kings... They take his empire and they spread it out amongst themselves. These four kings being uh, Antipater or these generals, Antipater who took Greece and Macedon, Lysimachus who took Thrace and much of Asia Minor, Seleucus who took Mesopotamia and Persia, and Ptolemy who took Egypt and Palestine with Seleucus and, and Ptolemy becoming the two dominant ones in the region. Now, Hopping back to recall the book of Daniel, in chapters 7 and 8, Daniel had these other visions about the kingdoms that would come. And I just want to declare to you the wisdom, the foreknowledge, the sovereignty, and the plan of God. Because remember, those four kingdoms that were prophesied in the statue, the, ch- the vision from chapter 7 was first of a beast, a lion, or four beasts, the first being a lion with wings, that was representing Babylon. The second was a bear that was standing tall on one side, hunched over on another. That represented the Medo-Persian Empire. The tall standing side of the bear was Persia, the stronger part of that partnership, the weaker side of the bear being the Medes. After that came a third beast, a leopard with four heads and four wings. The four wings representing how quickly this beast would conquer and spread. And that's exactly what Alexander did. The four heads representing those four generals who after him would take the empire and continue the Hellenistic influence. Now, if you hop to chapter eight in Daniel, you see a vision of a ram and a goat that comes after the ram, the ram representing that Persian empire that Alexander conquered. And then that goat that conquers it has one huge horn on its head, Alexander the Great. The interesting thing that happens after that is four small horns that spread off of the large horn. These four generals, Antipater, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. In fact, in that prophetic dream from Daniel, he says, this is going to be the Greek empire. He literally says, this is what's going to happen. And today, secular scholars have to go, This is too accurate. There's no way that they could have got this that right. They couldn't have written this when it says that it was written. This had to have been written hundreds of years later because there's no way they could have known this. Or maybe God is God. Maybe God actually is in control. Maybe God actually is sovereign. Maybe God actually does know the future. Maybe God does have a plan. And maybe he does speak through his prophets. So finally, the fourth beast that was so unusual and terrifying that it couldn't even be compared to a lion or a leopard or a bear. All he could say was this terrifying, powerful beast had teeth of iron. Remember that fourth empire, iron? He said this animal has teeth of iron, and it crushes and consumes everywhere that it goes. And we, of course, know that this empire comes to be Rome. But again, we're not quite there yet. These same meticulous things, are all prescribed, or not prescribed, prophesied in the book of Daniel. So when the kingdom of Greece, this Hellenistic kingdom, is spread out amongst these four generals, for a few hundred years, all these little kingdoms inside the empire start fighting and vying for power. Who's going to be the biggest? Who's going to be the greatest? And the two bigger ones that rise up are the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. And both of these, had rule and reign over Judea at different times and in different powers. Started off, Ptolemy was the stronger, ruling over Judea. And then after that, the Seleucids overtook Judea, and they ruled and reigned the area where Jews lived um, uh, for a while. Then one day, one of the Seleucid kings named Antiochus IV, didn't know you were getting a history lesson today, did you? Antiochus IV, who is an evil, vile man, we're almost done with history, This evil, vile man, Antiochus IV, not only did he oppress the Jews, he wanted to wipe out their way of worship and their their religion. And so what he does is he starts outlawing it, starts requiring that they, they can't worship that way, starts turning the temple of God into pagan temples, and then he does one thing that's the final straw. Antiochus offers a pig in the temple on the altar of God. If you're familiar at all with the Old Testament and Jewish custom and Jewish commandments of how to worship God, this is utter, heinous blasphemy. You do not offer a pig to the Lord on the altar of the Lord. That is an unclean animal to the Jew. The Jews are ticked. They said, enough is enough. And this, high, this one of the Jewish priests named Matthias goes, we've had it. And he starts going out among the people, stirring them up, begins to fan a revolt, saying, we've had it. This is enough. No more of this. And the Seleucids kill him. But his son Judas steps up to lead the revolt that his father was fanning. And Judas so strongly conquers and fights and wins that they give him a nickname, Judas Maccabeus. Maccabeus means hammer. I want that nickname, like Stephen the Hammer. Sounds pretty awesome. This guy conquers so strongly that they call him Judas Maccabeus, Judas the Hammer, and that is where we see in history the Maccabean revolt. And so for a hundred years, plus or minus a few years, around a hundred years, the people of Judah or of Judea finally experience Different levels of autonomy. They're finally their own little kingdom again, tucked over in the corner here. And then the problem was that they started fighting amongst themselves. There were some of them that wanted to be Hellenistic that said, we actually like these things that Alexander brought in. We'd like to keep doing that. Some of them were like, no, we need to return to faithfulness to the Lord. We need to start growing our beards and hair back out. We need to start wearing our long Jewish garbs again. And they were fighting and divided amongst themselves. And history has proven that's the best time to conquer someone when they're internally divided. Wake up, America. Anyways. All of that to say, Big brother Rome, the new kid on the block, shows up, and they have no chance. They come in, they conquer. Actually, Rome had Egypt in its sights, another large kingdom, and Judea was just on the way. And Judea folds and says, okay, Rome comes in under general, uh, oh my goodness, Pompey, the famous Roman general Pompey. He conquers and expands, conquers the Greek empire, expands, and now Rome is in charge of everything, everywhere, to their known world. Finally, there's another guy named Herod the Great. He sounds familiar. Yeah, Herod from Jesus' day. Herod the Great, who actually descended from Esau, if you do some historical research. Herod the Great is dubbed by Rome as King of the Jews. And you think about these rumors coming into the land that there's this new king of the Jews born. Well, if you're Herod, who's been called king of the Jews by Rome, who's loyal to Rome, friendly to Rome, because Rome put you in power, well, you're not excited about the idea of a new king of the Jews, which is why Herod did what he did in the opening chapters of Matthew, slaughtering babies. The Hasidim, these are the religious Puritans, who wanted to cleanse the culture of Hellenism and strove to stay theologically conservative, these people grew to be called the Pharisees. Ah, those guys that Jesus sparred with quite a bit. The Hasmoneans, their counterparts, who enjoyed their elite status by friendship of Rome and prophets by extension of Roman support, these were much more theologically liberal And progressive and eventually became known as the Sadducees. Ah, that other group of people that sparred a lot with Jesus. Then, around the year 6 BC, after 400 years of radio silence, a Galilean, a Nazarene, is born in Bethlehem named Jesus. Malachi chapter 3 at the end of the Old Testament prophesied that there was a messenger coming to make way for the Lord. And then it talks about a second messenger, a messenger of the covenant who would refine God's people, who would be loved and desired, and whom none could withstand. These two messengers we turn to see in John chapter 1. Open your Bibles and flip to. John chapter 1, we're going to read a very famous passage, powerful passage. John 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This was that second messenger cited in Malachi chapter 3, the messenger of the covenant who would come and refine This word. Continuing on in verse 6, here's the other messenger. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He has made him known. After all these years, after all these generations, thousands of years, hundreds of years, genealogical lists, if you read Matthew chapter 1, where it accounts the genealogy from Abraham. To Jesus, you see this laundry list of the heroes of the faith, this genealogy that goes from Abraham to Jesus, that is littered with people who may have done at some t- sometimes done well, other times crashed and burned, showing and revealing person after person, generation after generation, years after years, thousands and thousands of years of sinful, rebellious, broken, stubborn, stiff-necked people. That after thousands of years of failed, corrupt kings and leaders, after hundreds of years of exile under Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome, after all these years of oppression and subjugation... Centuries of weariness and hunger and longing for a Messiah. Years and generations of desperation after 400 years of silence. No speaking, no prophets, not a word. The word became flesh, put on human skin, comes down to earth as the light And the life of men. After silence, the man, God incarnate, becomes the messenger, the word. Speaking and revealing the character, the nature of God. If you went to John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, you'd see three different accounts that are all in a few different words saying the same things. Declaring the deity and supremacy of Jesus Christ. Declaring that he was functional and creating everything. When you think about lately, when you have watched the images coming in from the new James Webb telescope that's looking deeper into space than we've ever been able to look and you see these images coming to your eyes that are mind-blowing of all the stars and systems and galaxies that are so vast, just stop and look at that picture and think, Jesus did that. When you go out into the country at nighttime and you're far enough away from lights where you look up and you see it with your own eyes, there's something fluttering inside of you saying, this came from a higher power It is the artistry of the creator testifying to his artistry. The same way that when you look at Mona Lisa, you know there was a skilled artist behind that painting. You look at the ocean. You go on vacation and see mountains. You fly in a plane and look at the earth, and your heart's going, someone is behind this. This could not have been an accident. Jesus Christ, supreme deity, equal with the Father, eternal eternally existent with the Father, functionally in creation and upholding to this day the universe. Jesus is God. This is the point that John wants us to see before he starts telling any stories about what Jesus did, before he starts giving us any of the teachings of Jesus. He opens his book by saying, The word was in the beginning with God, that he existed with God. He was creating all things. There was nothing that was made without him, a.k.a. newsflash. Jesus is God. This guy I'm about to tell you a whole lot of other stuff about in this gospel, he's God. You get that? That's what I want you to know, John saying this, before we go any further. He acknowledges that not only is he deity, not only is he eternally coexistent with the Father and the Holy Spirit, not only was he functional in the creation of the universe, but he is life. And this life, Christ Jesus, is the light of men. This light that no darkness can quench, no darkness can overcome. Other translations say the darkness could not comprehend it. Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness. And the way that I would paraphrase it is the dark don't have a thing to say about it. Jesus is the light. If we went over to the breakers and killed the power in this building and this room was pitch black, it would not be because the darkness overpowered the light, it would be because there is no light turned on. And all it would take is one person pulling out their cell phone, hitting the light on their fla- flashlight on their cell phone, and all of a sudden, the dark in the room can't say a thing about it. Darkness is nothing more than the absence of light. And in a world of darkness with oppression and sin and suffering and all the evil in this world, in this day, when the fullness of time had come, Jesus the light comes in and the dark just has to go, yes, sir. Jesus is the light, and this is a wonderful comfort to us in a day where we look at the news or Twitter or Facebook, Lord, help us, and we see so much darkness. We see people hating one another. We see people hurting one another. Maybe you have experienced hate or hurt at the hands of someone else, all this darkness, we can read the God-inspired words of John and go, there is a light, Jesus Christ, who has come into the world. In a world that is saturated in darkness, where it all may seem or it may seem that all hope is lost, Jesus Christ steps into the darkness and shines with an incomprehensible brightness, so bright that the the hopeless skin of prisoners who are bound and locked up in sin begin to feel the warmth of the sun thawing out their bones, melting the frost off of their cold and hardened hearts that have been hardened by sin. The the sun, the light begins to warm and melt that frost, awakening the spiritually dead, reviving the soul, renewing the mind, and bringing a hope that had seemed like a distant memory. Not only did Jesus Christ come to turn on a light in the darkness, he came, John says, that whoever believed and him. He gave the right not to become mere followers of God, not merely to become fans of God or students of God or servants of God. Yes, but what John said is to become the children of God. And shame on us for how familiar we become with that concept that we are invited through faith to become children of God. This is the game changer. This is the game changer. Not only that Jesus comes in and starts reciting law to everyone, but he came as the bodily manifestation of grace and truth, John says. John tells us that from his fullness, not ours, his fullness, we have all received not only grace, but grace upon grace. That saying, John's trying to tell you, hey, I don't care how bad you think you are, how evil you think you are, how much bad you think you've done, and you are and you have. There is grace on top of grace. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans saying, hey, we're sin abounded, all the more the grace Of God abounded. No matter how bad you think you are, no matter how far you think you are from the Lord Jesus Christ, His grace is greater than your sin. His grace is greater than your sin. Why? Because His grace is not coming from our fullness, which is not full. My grace is limited. Your grace is limited. Our grace is flawed. Jesus' grace is the fullness from which our love, our forgiveness, our acceptance before God comes. Grace upon grace to those who believe in his name. He arrives at the fullness of time in God's perfect plan. When everyone was speaking the same language, when there was Pax Romana, when there was 250,000 miles of road throughout the empire that the messengers could travel on he arrives at the perfect time to a people, a culture, a history, a circumstance where they were longing for a savior, longing for a deliverer, longing for someone to fix what was broken in their kingdom of Judea he arrives but what did John say That he came to his own people and they did not receive him. Why not? Two reasons. One, because they were looking for the next king. They were looking for the next revolutionary leader, the next deliverer who would raise up an army, lead a revolt against Rome, and reestablish the kingdom of Israel. That's what they were looking for. Someone who would restore the kingdom to its former glory, the golden days of David someone who would sit upon the throne of King David with an everlasting kingdom. They were waiting, they were believing, they were longing, and believing that God would fulfill his promises. But when Jesus came, born a baby into a humble family of seemingly no political consequence born in a quaint little town of Bethlehem, lying in a manger not in the best crib in the palace. No host of royal celebrities and elites celebrating his arrival. No party at the palace. As they were looking for a king of Judah, instead arrived the king of the universe. When they were looking for a revolutionary leader to liberate Jews from Rome, instead arrived a savior who would liberate mankind from Satan, sin, and death, the true oppressor. When they were looking for the restoration of the golden age of the kingdom of Israel, instead came a king who would accomplish the work of his father, which would ultimately be to consummate all things, restoring all things to the garden state, an undefiled, pure and holy, beautiful, eternal relationship with God. No sin, no sickness, no death, no shame, no sorrow, no mourning, no tears. Reveling in his glory, singing and declaring the glorious splendor of his majesty, the infinite riches of his grace, the wonder of his holiness, the joy of his love for eternity. See, Jesus didn't come to merely fix a broken kingdom. He came to fix a broken humanity. For time's sake, I'll paraphrase John chapter 3. Jesus has a Pharisee sneak out in the middle of the night to come meet him because this guy's intrigued by Jesus. His name's Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, Jesus, it's obvious by the works that you do, meaning his miracles. It's obvious by the works that you do that you're from the kingdom of God. And Jesus says to him, listen, if you want into the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again. And he's like, with his natural fallen mind, he says, Jesus, what are you talking about? That's awkward. Uh, Are you saying we're supposed to get back into our mother's womb? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. If you want into the kingdom of God, you've got to first be born of water. You've got to be born. You've got to be born of the spirit. The spirit comes in and gives you that new heart, that new life, that new desire to actually want to do all those things that the law tells you you're supposed to do. He tells him these things. And then if you continue on in chapter 19, Jesus talking to Nicodemus says, the light has come into the world. And he says to him, but men loved darkness rather than light. And that they don't want to come into the light because the light exposes that their deeds are evil. I said, why is it that they didn't receive him when he came? One, because he wasn't what they were looking for. And the natural two, they didn't receive him because they love darkness. And this is still the situation today. This is still the case. See, unbelief would seem to be more of a head thing. But scripture shows us it's actually a heart thing. Unbelief in Jesus is actually more about the affections of our heart than it is about the knowledge in our head. Think about the rich young ruler. He comes up to Jesus and like Nicodemus, he's like, how do I get into the kingdom? And Jesus says to him, well, you know, obey the law. And he was a pretty good person. And he's like, well, yeah, I've been doing that my whole life, Jesus. And Jesus says, yeah, you've been doing a good job. One more thing. And he touches on what's in his heart. He says, one more thing. Uh, You know, sell all you've got and give it to the poor. Jesus wasn't prescribing this to all of us. He was confronting what was Lord of this man's heart. He says, sell all that you've got and give it to the poor. And what happens? What does it say? It says, he went away sad because he had great possessions. It wasn't knowledge and information that got in his way. It was what was in his heart that got in his way. Jesus talking to John saying, men love darkness. It's not that people struggle with knowing the right things or having enough light. A lack of faith in Christ has less to do with mental obstacles with history or science or ethics. And it has a lot more to do with the heart's overpowering desire for something that doesn't fit in the Christian faith. It's people who go oh. I, 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 in my own conscience, know what's right and wrong, and I know this God, this Jesus, this Bible, this faith of Christianity would require of me something that I love and don't want to let go of. Therefore, um, yeah, that can't be true because of X, Y, Z. Because they don't want to let go of the evil pleasures that are in their heart. They love the darkness. And also stepping into the light, Jesus tells John, exposes your deeds as evil. And we live in a culture in a day and an age where everyone's good, your own good, what's true for you. And scripture goes, nope. Step into the light. Stop deceiving yourself. Scripture talks about the deceitfulness of sin. Stop deceiving yourself and trying to convince yourself that this is okay. And because you don't want to let go of those things, you just convince yourself, oh yeah, science and history and scriptural uh, integrity and all that kind of stuff. God can't be real. Did you see? There's no way that prophet could get that right that many years ahead of it happening. God can't be real. Why? Because in the heart It's saying, don't let go of that stuff that you love. People don't struggle to come to Christ for lack of light, but because the light reveals the evil in their heart. And therefore, you have to convince yourself, despite all the evidence for God. Romans tells us that we look at creation and our conscience says, this is from a creator. But when you love darkness and it deceives you because you don't wanna let go of it, you go, uh, big bang. (laughs) Because if this is true and his word is true, if he is real and his word is true, then we must repent and leave our ungodly affections behind recognizing that when we do, we, if we could get over what we're letting go of and recognize what we are being invited into, knowing life, knowing the God of all creation. And we sit here and go, no, not that thing. Don't ask that of me, God. It's like you don't even know what you're saying no to because of these petty, sinful desires. You have deep, eternal, everlasting joy in Jesus Christ. But we get so hung up on these things. Not only is it what stops people from coming to faith in Christ, but it's also what keeps peop- or causes people to turn away from Christ. You remember Paul talking about Demas, a guy who at one point he was raving about his faith. And then at another point, Paul says, yeah, Demas has left me. He deserted me. Because of his love for this present age. His love for this world. This is why the Apostle John says you cannot love God and love this world. Non simpatico. They don't work. Love for God removes love for the things of this world. That's why the same John in the book of 1 John talks about if you love God and know God, you walk in the light as he is in the light. And if we confess our sin, if we go, I'm going to step out into the light because I'm going to stop denying truth, stop denying what my heart knows is true. And I'm going to step into the light and just acknowledge I'm not as awesome as I want to think I am. This is when I finally got saved as 26 years old teaching faculty at a Bible school. Because I was finally willing to go, Stephen is not as holy as you guys think he is. In fact, I'm a wicked sinner in need of a savior. I'm pretty awful. I have evil desires. And this facade I've put on is not true. And when I did that at 26 years old, that's when the Holy Spirit truly changed me. I don't care who you are, I don't care what your background is. I don't care if you are a leader of a team in our church. I don't care if you're on the board in our church. I don't care if you are on staff in our church. I don't care what people will think of you. Get out of the darkness. If there's something in your life, step into the light. Confessing your sin. And to the world would say there's no such thing as sin, the same John in the book of John says, actually, if you're walking in the light, it means that you're not walking in darkness. You've confessed your sin. And if if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Let me tell you, non-Christian, if you will let go of the darkness of this life and step into the light and just go, I do, I do need Jesus you will know life in a way you never have before. Let me tell you, Christian, if you're flirting with darkness, if you are allowing measures of darkness into rooms of your life, that is the path that deceit leads to falling away, turning away, hardening of your heart, shipwrecking of your faith, Paul would say. I got no more notes. I'll just say this, do not let your pride and the deceitfulness of evil affections keep you from coming to the Lord of life. And secondly, if you have tasted of his goodness, do not stray and wander by letting darkness in. And look at your life, evaluate your life. What are the things in my life that I've allowed in, that I've permitted, that I need to get back out of my life? Peter said, he has said, be holy for I am holy. We are called to look different. We are called to be different because we are invited into life everlasting. Lord Jesus, I ask you today that by your Holy Spirit, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, who has not tasted of your goodness, who has not believed in you, God, I ask you by your Holy Spirit that you would give them faith today. Help them see their need for Jesus Christ. Help them feel convicted and repentant and broken over their sin. God, give them the courage to step into the light. And God, if there is anyone here that has known you but has begun to compromise, shutting the door and turning off the light in rooms of their life. God, I ask by your Holy Spirit that you would convict them of their sin. God, I ask that you would draw them back to you. Return to them the joy of their salvation. Return all of us to our first love. Lord, revive us, renew us, stir our affections and our passion for you that we could love you, follow you, and serve you with joy, not with burden, but with joy. And that as your light has filled us by your Holy Spirit, we could go out into this dark world, shining your light everywhere we go for the glory of your name, in Jesus' name, amen.